are Seraphim. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Generation Space, the podcast by Seraphim. Today we'll be looking at how we can ensure the space sector can remain sustainable as it undergoes unprecedented levels of growth. We'll be talking about space junk and how we measure it, maintain it and safely remove it. First, I'm delighted to welcome Nick Shave, he's MD of Astroscale. Astroscale specialises in working with international agencies to develop innovative solutions to capture debris. Astroscale are the market leader in satellite servicing and long-term orbital sustainability across all orbits. Hi, Nick. Hello, Leah. Really nice to be here on this podcast. Brilliant. Thank you for joining us today. Um, we also have Alan de Klerk. He's Executive Vice President of Europe, Middle East and Africa for Leo Labs. Leo Labs provides the mapping platform for low-Earth orbit and the global leader in providing SSA data and services in Leo. This includes a global network of space radars that track space debris and satellites 24-7 to support space sustainability. Alan joined Leo Labs in its first year in 2016 and is now leading Leo Labs expansion into the EMEA region. So, and finally, last but not least, um, I'm, welcome, I'm delighted to welcome back Mark Boggett. He's CEO and co-founder of Sarah from Space. Right, so thank you for joining me again today. Let's get straight to, to the questions. Mark, let's start with you and let's start with the basics for everyone. Can you tell everyone what is space debris and what causes it? So there have been around 15,000 satellites that have been launched since man started going into space. But only 5,000 of those are operational today. So that means that there are 10,000 dead satellites circulating around in orbit. So it's not just satellites. This also includes parts of rockets, their upper stages, their boosters, and the debris that's generated from satellites as they disintegrate over time. So there are estimates today that there are between 100,000 and 500,000 pieces of debris in space. These are human-generated objects. 80% of the 5,000 satellites that are operational in space today were launched in the last three years. And there are estimates that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of satellites, will be launched over the coming years. And these satellites, each of them has a working life. That's typically between four and ten years. So these satellites are also going to have to be replaced on a regular cycle. So this is the reason why there's a huge focus on debris today, how we can address this existing problem and the problems of the past, but more importantly, how we can stop it getting worse. Is this something new, Mark? How has space junk historically been managed? So there are two elements. First of all, regulation. So a bit of a mouthful, the Interagency Space Debris Coordination Committee, or IADC, they've set guidelines that satellites must be deorbited within 25 years. Then you have other forms of regulation. So, for example, the ITU that regulates telecom satellites in geospatial orbits, they say that those satellites need to be removed when they've reached the end of their economic life and they get um, towed into a graveyard orbit, which is out of the way. So that's the regulation. Then we've got the monitoring with space debris. This has, for many years, been exclusively done by the US Air Force. So they monitor the satellites in space, the dead satellites, the, the pieces of debris, and they do this using a combination of ground-based radars, telescopes, and a space-based telescope as well. But they're typically looking at any objects that are 10 centimetres or, or larger. So the role of this activity has, uh, over the last few years, been moved to the US Strategic Command, the 18th Space Defence Squadron. They now track a catalogue of 45,000 items. So in the event that any one of these 45,000 items 
is likely to be on a collision path with a live satellite, they will get in touch with the owner of that satellite and give them a heads up that they need to move. The problem is, is that the error range is absolutely huge. Tracking uncertainties are as high as a kilometer to 10 kilometers away in terms of their orbital precision. And secondly, 45,000 objects are only the largest objects. Objects that are sub 10 centimeters are also equally as dangerous. Thank you, Mark. Like Alan, Leo Labs work more on the, the monitoring side. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about Leo Labs and, and what Leo Labs are doing to help, help tackle this huge problem? Uh, absolutely. So first want to reinforce Mark's comment about the, the fundamental change that's going on, which is all about scale. So at this point, the, uh, it's not just the scaling of additional satellites going in, but it's, it's recognizing and beginning to monitor these sub 10 centimeter objects of which there are hundreds, we think there are hundreds of thousands, at least hundreds of thousands, which are also potentially catastrophic in their impact on space stations, satellite constellations, and so on. So what Leo Labs is doing is providing, first of all, an infrastructure, a network, a constellation of ground-based space radars that look up and track and monitor objects that go over these and track them frequently because we have a number of different sites for these radars. In fact, just just yesterday, we commissioned our latest radars in Western Australia, and uh, we have about half a dozen sites around the world and are expanding that. Now, we take that data, if you kind of think of upside down Google Maps, we take that data and we put it in a mapping platform and then make it available through APIs so that other services like collision avoidance or tracking of new launches or proximity operations can then be offered to the community of users in space. So there's a generational change going on in the whole demographics in low Earth orbit. And probably just by the end of this year, we'll have 10,000 satellites uh, up in orbit. So there's a need to respond quickly to this. And, And I think we've talked about this before, that there is... There's always three things you can do with this debris problem. You can not make more of it. And I think that that speaks to the regulatory point that Mark made. You can clean it up. And then finally, it's it's to avoid it. And to avoid it, you need data. You need, you need very responsive and more accurate data than, let's say, the defense network was designed to produce. Our role, I think, is to, is to be this mapping platform and to provide sort of enabling information for the all the other players in space to be able to operate effectively, safely, ensure, regularly, do all the right things. Fascinating stuff. Thank you, Alan. Um, can you tell us a little bit, Nick, about Astroscale and what you're working on specifically? Astroscale was formed in 2013. We're an aerobic servicing company that's looking to address a number of issues, in particular, the debris issue that we have in orbit that was so well explained by Mark and, and Alan. It is a real issue. I mean, people might think that space is big. Well, it is if you go out a long way from the Earth, but the orbits close to Earth are getting congested. So what our mission is, is to try and make space usable for future generations. The communication systems, the navigation systems that we all use on Earth, the Earth observation and weather systems, all we're so dependent on space now. So that's the problem. Space debris, if there are collisions in orbit between satellites or between debris and, and, and satellites, then we'll start to impact those really important systems that we all depend on. So what we're doing in Astroscale is demonstrating at the moment the way that we can start to remove some of those objects in space, those pieces of debris. We have a mission in orbit that launched last year called ELSA-D. It's a demonstration mission. 
And that basically demonstrated the concept of capturing another object in space in a reliable and safe way. That mission still continues at the moment, but it's really been a world first, I'd say, in terms of demonstrating what we can do in terms of debris removal. And then what we're doing now is building a system or a number of satellites. We've got another launch this year, which is called ADRAS-J, which is being built in Japan by our Japanese colleagues inside Astroscale. That will go up and observe a big three-ton rocket body, for example, one of the really dangerous pieces of space junk that's up there. And there's many of those. There's a few hundred two to three ton rocket bodies in orbit in LEO, low Earth orbit. So these are the sorts of missions that we're working on. And the final point I'll say is, you know, there's many constellations, low Earth orbit constellations. You may have heard of Starlink, obviously in OneWeb and others that are coming. When those satellites get to the end of their lives and they can't deorbit themselves to remove themselves from orbit, if they have failures, for example, on board, we're building a service that will go and capture those satellites that are effectively dead and bring them down so they can burn up safely in the Earth's atmosphere. Fascinating. Thank, thank you, Nick. Mark, let's go back to you. Um, given that we are still at the start of the potential space sector, the, the start of the growth, what made you first realise there was a need to build and invest in companies like this, companies that are working towards space sustainability? Well, from the outset, we realised that um, as we run a space-focused venture fund, that we're actually part of the problem. We're investing into the companies that are building these large constellations. So from the start, we recognised that we also needed to invest in the, into the solutions for the uh, evolving debris problem. The problem is that the regulators just don't have the tools to help them effectively do the jobs themselves. They're not able to measure all of the debris and they're not able to enable operators to effectively remove their end of life or dead satellites. So all of the regulators worldwide recognise this problem. They know it needs to be addressed. This is required for the sustainable commercial development of space. So from our perspective, it was an imperative to find solutions. But importantly, and this is a great news as uh, being an investor in the sector, if we identified the right leaders, it would be the regulators that would be mandating their services for a future multi-billion dollar market. So we have really carefully looked at all of the players in this market and tried to back those that are in a position to, to lead this market. What credentials specifically stood out to you with, with, in regards to our two guests today, in regards to Leo Labs and, and Astroscale? So let's start with Leo Labs. Uh, we invested in their A-series in 2018, and even then they were years ahead of the, of the competition. Three of their four co-founders had been working at SRI International, one of the world's foremost uh, research institutes, and they'd been specifically focused on space traffic control. So they had been developing a, a new form of radar that was 10 times lower cost than the radars that were in the market. They already had operations over two existing radars, and they were planning to build three or four more radars in order to build out a global solution. But importantly, they were aiming to try and identify and monitor the debris in space that was sub 10 centimetres. They were aiming to get down to monitor all of the debris down to two centimetres. They're also looking to reduce this huge level of uncertainty in terms of the accuracy of the prediction of when a debris was going to pass a working satellite. So that was currently at, um, at kilometres, and Leo Labs were looking to bring that down to sub-50 metres. So in 2018, there was simply nobody else on the playing field that had anywhere near the credibility 
or the position in the market that Leo Lads have today. And and since 2018, when we invested, they've really built on that position. So that I think I'm right in saying, Alan, correct me if I'm wrong here, but aren't you uh, already now providing services in Leo to more than 60% of all of the satellites in the low Earth orbit market? That That is correct. It's about, about two thirds of all the active satellites in low Earth orbit are are using our collision avoidance or uh, early operations uh, detection, so on, those, those kinds of services, correct? So it was through our investment in Leo Labs that we, we, we really started to carefully monitor this market and really understand what the regulators were, were doing to address this uh, emerging big problem. And in doing that, we were looking at the other players and particularly the players that were focused on active removal of uh, debris in space. And Astroscale is one of the original players in that market. As Nick already said, they've been around since 2013. So I was looking back at our records. We've actually been um, following Astroscale in each of their rounds since 2017. But we actually took until 2021 before we made their, our first investment in their F-series. And the reason that we did that at that point in time was we'd really grown our conviction that they, this company was absolutely the leader in this, uh, in this field. As Nick has, uh, has already outlined, they're not just doing active debris removal. There are a number of other uh, revenue streams that this company has, including end-of-life solutions, the extension of the life of satellites, and moving into areas like refueling of satellites. So it wasn't a sort of one-stop play to invest into, into this business. And we think that this company is going to play a significant role in the development of the in-orbit servicing market which we believe is going to become a multi-billion dollar market, but it's also going to be driven by regulation, which we think is where both Leo Labs and Astroscale are working very closely globally with all of the regulators to try and to try and help them with their activities. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Mark. I think what everyone wants to know is what can be done to combat space junk. Is this something that will eventually require global government collaboration to help support? Well, I think there are some really good signs that the the uh, global regulatory community is starting to figure out which areas they would want to focus on. Uh, some some really positive things just came out in 2022 in the U.S. government, for example, dropping the rule of deorbiting from 25 down to five. Uh, there was a statement about a global moratorium on destructive ASAT tests. And now there's another thing called the Orbits Act that's going through Congress that talks about actually operationalizing the debris removal activities, which uh, Astroscale is, one, is the leader in. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity there for the companies like, like ourselves who are really enabling this age of infrastructure. So we're helping to uh, inform the policymakers helping to inform areas of governance that are happening at national and at, at, at regional and at global levels. Our role, as we see it, is really to inform the best practices, the development of, of rules of the road, and to offer services that range from LEOP services when deployments first happen so we don't lose satellites on deployment, to giving ongoing day-to-day, minute-to-minute collision avoidance service, to then uh, something we have called Leo Risk, which is this tool that kind of covers the whole life cycle of space safety and from launch to retirement. And to give you an idea where you should put your constellations, where are the dangerous neighborhoods and the sorts of calculations that are needed to decide, okay, where do we prioritize the proliferation of new constellations? Where do we prioritize the ADR exercises? 
I think we're all working together, as I say, on this age of infrastructure de-risking that's going on. I think one of the other things, just to chime in there, is that actually the satellite operators themselves are being good corporate citizens. You know, we as investors and other investors take the same view. When we're talking about a company that's putting up a large constellation, you know, one of the first things that we're asking them is, what are their plans to deorbit the uh, broken satellites or the end-of-life satellites? And uh, they all have answers for that. You've got the bigger players in the market, the likes of Starlink, that have agreed that they are going to uh, be removing their satellites over that five-year period after the end of economic life. And they've, they've built capability in their satellites to enhance the speed in which they descend back towards Earth and then burn up in the atmosphere. I know that OneWeb have also uh, made commitments around this and uh, they've actually been fixing grappling hooks onto their satellites so that companies such as Astroscale can come along and uh, effectively grab them and remove them. That's exactly true. Yeah, we are working with OneWeb actually under a a program supported by the UK Space Agency to develop uh, a service which will remove failed OneWeb satellites. So yeah, they've been re- really forward thinking, I would say, in, in installing you know, grappling hooks and uh, magnetic capture systems on board their satellites. In the unfortunate case, I, w- I think maybe you could say that the satellite totally fails. They also try to, you know, their, their first port of call is to deorbit the satellite themselves using their own propulsion. And the reliability of those propulsion systems is another important aspect to make sure that you know, if the, the satellite, once it gets to the end of its life and it's no longer economically useful, it can then deorbit itself. But there is a certain percentage of satellites that will always fail because of reliability or problems come from a number of different angles. Those satellites that really do fail, that once they've got that grappling hook or capture system on board, that companies like us can go and tow them out of orbit, a bit like a recovery service on the road. <laughs> That's what we're trying to create. Our mission is to make this type of in-orbit servicing routine by 2030. And I think we're on the way to do that with, with, with us and a number of other companies moving quickly into this space. Thank you, Nick. Fascinating. Government regulation is something that affects all industries around the world, as we know, and it, and it can be a fantastic driver for, for growth and sustainability. Do you believe that's the current space um, case in the space sector? Yeah, so I think that the regulations behind the curve, for all of the reasons that we've uh, that we've talked about, they haven't had the tools in place to be able to drive the right outcomes for the satellite operators. It's companies like Leo Labs and uh, and and like Astroscale that are now providing those tools. So regulators around the world are are largely in agreement of what's required before a license is provided to a satellite operator to launch. What the regulators are moving towards is that um, that this company has an independent propulsion system in order to remove that satellite from space after it's um, broken or reached the end of its life. And if they don't want to put on a, um, a propulsion system, then they need to have a insurance or a contract with a company like Astroscale that they've paid in advance. So even if they go bust in 10 years time, a company like Astroscale can then go and remove that satellite. Or if they pay into an insurance pot, effectively that insurance will then pay a company like Astroscale to remove those satellites at the appropriate point in time. So this is the way that regulation is moving. And pretty much all of the regulators around the the world are in agreement that that's the type of solution that's required. 
but the market's not quite mature enough yet to be able to actually implement that regulation. But it's moving very quickly. I'd be really interested to hear what uh, what Nick and Alan have to say about where the state of the nation right now and how quickly we're going to get to uh, a scenario like I just outlined. Well, I, I should say that from the standpoint of Leo Labs, uh, what we what we feel like we're developing is a sort of actuarial foundation for governance. And uh, we were just, in fact, given the sole source contract with the Department of Commerce in the U.S. as they as the U.S. puts together its whole safety of traffic management system. But we worked with Ganes, the U.K. Space Agency and others and continue to, to do that to help, I think, inform the def- definition of these rules. So it's moving there quickly. But in some ways, scale is a, a scale of these uh, large organizations is a disadvantage because for, for some years now, we've been working, for example, with the New Zealand Space Agency. They have the best data in the world. And it isn't a question of sort of finding the right answer. This regulatory process is really iterative. It's what information can I get? And then how can we build rules and governance around that? And it's step by step by step. So I think it's a process that we see happening. And, and the this discoveries as well, okay, here's, here's an ADR, here's a debris removal element of this. Here's a launch element of this. Here's a regulation that says you must have certain things in place. You know, you need seat belts and anti-lock brakes before we let you launch. And then once you get those, it, over time, it looks like if you don't have those, then we won't give you insurance. So these things all fit together as they, they do in other, other industries. So, Nick, you probably have a unique perspective on this. I fully agree with what you said, Alan. That's exactly the case. And uh, one thing we try to say, and certainly when we're engaging with governments around the world, we do focus a lot on the policy side in terms of how we can contribute, given the knowledge we have, and uh, with companies obviously like Leo Labs, who incidentally we use on LCD, and they provided an excellent service. I think we see a lot of that companies in this space working really closely together to generate you know good outcomes. I think one thing we do argue is that the issue is urgent. You know, we are, as Mark outlined at the start, you know, the, the large number of pieces of debris down to ten centimeters and below is problematic. And we've seen some very near misses that we need to avoid so that we can continue to utilize space and, and, and utilize the services it provides. So that's something that we're, we're often discussing with regulators around the world is, OK, let's put these things in place. It's great to see the US take some leadership with a five year rule to deorbit at LEO. How can other countries do that? And then the next stage is how can we get that international coordination of regulations? which is needed given space is such a global commons. So it's great to hear that it is actually evolving, but what timescale do you think this will, will be? How long will this all take? Well, we're, we're certainly suggesting that, you know, we're, we're in, it's a year or two that we need to be uh, having this sort of regulations in place because of the rapid growth in terms of constellations, particularly in Leo. So, you know, we're, we've seen the US move quite fast in the last sort of half of last year. The UK have a plan, for example, to put in place at least the policy side of the regulations this year. Uh, European Space Agency have made some good strides. They've said that they will have a sort of net zero space approach so that any satellite they launch after 2030 will be removed from space. So they're developing technologies and they're investing in Astroscale actually as well institutionally to help, help them achieve that. So I think the pace of the regulatory environment is going to be gated by their ability to to monitor compliance. 
So you can get out front with governance and policies which can't be even monitored, let alone be moved into a compliance setting. And so I, I think it will be gated on the a lot of the innovations and the achievements on the commercial side of the Astro scales. And I think of, of us as Leo Labs, as we're, as we're, again, my role is to, is to expand our presence and reach out, especially in the EMEA and in the European space over the next year or two, to make sure that we're working with these bodies to accelerate the kinds of policy measures that they want to put in place. But I think it's a, uh, there's a lot of commercial leadership, I think that has to happen on the side as, as the, uh, the public sector figures this out. Thank you, Alan. Um, I think Alan mentioned earlier about the FCC reducing timeframes for satellite operations and deorbiting satellites from 25 years to five years, which sounds amazing. Who would someone like to elaborate on that for us a little bit more? I think that was a really fascinating point. So I, I think that this is the first step of evidence that, that regulation is now moving in line with the market. A very significant move. Previously, where there was only handfuls of, uh, of satellites in space, relying on the uh, orbital drag of the, of the Earth to pull these satellites down over a 25-year period to burn up was sufficient. But now we're in an environment where there are hundreds or even thousands of satellites. We simply can't wait that long for this to happen naturally. And that's the reason why we've, uh, we've moved to the, this five-year figure. NASA have been lobbying for this for many years. The fact that it happened last year, I think, is uh, great directionally for how this regulation is going. Yeah, I fully agree, Mark. I think uh, it's, it's a really good signal that the space community as a whole is starting to address this, this problem. We've had similar problems on the Earth, like plastics in the ocean, you know, that have taken international coordination to get moving. And now that's, that's you know, there's still a problem, but it's being addressed. And this space debris is a similar sort of issue. It's something that we need to address. And the FCC have shown some great leadership in, in taking some steps to reduce down from 25 to five years to remove satellites from low Earth orbit. In terms of impact to, to our businesses, I would argue that it's needed anyway, but obviously companies like mine, Astroscale, where this is helping to make our market, this type of regulation as it comes in around the world will generate more opportunities for debris removal for companies like mine. I think history is also a good guide. Uh, there's been a huge amount of country collaboration in space. So take the ISS, for example. There's 103 countries that are involved uh, with, the, uh, with the ISS. And I think that that demonstrates how space has actually been an environment in which many different countries, even throughout the Cold War, have really agreed on what is best. This is the reason why I remain very positive. And I agree, Nick, with you that we're talking a handful of years away before the appropriate regulations are in place to address this big problem of space debris. I would agree with that, Mark, and, and say, I think there's an observation here that we are not yet in the phase of having a space economy. In fact, what we're doing now is building all that foundational infrastructure that will, again, at some point, put the hotels and the factories and the farms and the other, other elements up there. I think now there's, there's, a lot, there's a need for a lot of international collaboration to look at how we put a common infrastructure up. These are the constellations. These are the launch capabilities. These are the communications networks. And, and from our perspective, there's a map. And these, these are really the four pillars of, of the infrastructure that are being put in place that will be the foundation for the economy in space as we understand it on Earth. 
So it's just a couple of years away, I think, that the regulatory bodies and the services like Astroscales and ours come, in, come together in critical mass to support that kind of economic growth. Excellent. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Nick. I think one question that people might be intrigued to know is that following news that's been in the press recently, countries like China and Russia have actually been known to destroy their own satellites in space and actually creating more debris. What's your view on governments actually adding to this problem? Yeah, it's an unfortunate uh, situation. And in fact, a number of countries have tested what's called anti-satellite weapons or ASATs in space. However, there is a trend to uh, reduce this. And uh, I think, as Alan mentioned earlier, there is a moratorium now being adopted by the UN, uh, a number of countries in un- under the UN to reduce and no longer do anti-satellite tests, uh, which is which is a great thing. It really does need to stop. I think we've, we've there's enough debris up there already, so we don't need to be cre- creating any more. And it's great to see the international community reaching out and and saying they're not going to do this anymore. This is something we all, I think, are are supporting the ban on these kinds of tests. Practically speaking, when they do occur, it turns out that it's very, very critical to have information in those first few weeks and first few months about the consequences of something. So, for example, in the 2019, in the Cosmos 1408 test that happened, those first few months were really important to understand the impact. Then because of the altitude, somewhere in the area of 470 kilometers, in the, in that altitude, since then, 75% of those objects have now deorbited. The flip side of that is that the, the, the uh, Chinese test back in 2017, still 75% because that was up at 860 or so kilometers. Those objects, 75% are still in orbit. So how these things are monitored, how we react to them, Essentially, we need to have very, very responsive tools and a lot of transparency to address this. So there's the policy, which is don't do it anymore. And then there is putting capabilities in place to cope with it when these things do occur. And uh, an ASAT test is is probably, I think it's probably very unlikely going forward, uh, given now we're having much more visibility to the impact. Thank you, Alan. One more question. Um, in your opinions, what can space tech and governments do to ensure a sustainable future in space? It's quite a quite a, a large question, but um, maybe Nick, I'll go to you first. Yeah, we we are as space tech companies really focused on building our systems with sustainability in mind. We've mentioned a couple of things like uh, you know reliable deorbit systems, either you know on board the satellite or services that can be provided at end of life or actively to debris to remove debris. And also there's things like uh, satellite demisability, building components in satellites that we can be assured will burn up when they re-enter rather than, you know, some large object objects don't always all burn up. You know, luckily, the Earth, what well, we're here today, right? Luckily, the Earth's atmosphere is thick, so it creates a lot of friction given the speed reduction and the energy that's generated as those objects come back in. So mostly they will burn up depending on the size and the type of materials. So I think all of these different things need to come together and space tech companies are fully aware and are, as as Mark said earlier, are building these things in uh, and it makes it more investable, more insurable. And we're going to see things like third party liability reduced if you're doing these these types of activities. 
Yeah, just to chime in there, I think the insurance market has got a huge part to play here with uh, insurance having requirements of companies that they meet certain standards around their debris planning. That is a really important part. If uh, the cost of insurance becomes prohibitive um, for companies that uh, haven't taken adequate measures, I think that's going to be a really effective way of uh, making the companies uh, behave in the right way. Uh, There are governments that have sort of recognised this. So, for example, in the UK, the UK government's currently looking at um, creating some sort of a kite mark in association with the insurance industry so that it's easy for investors to identify companies to back that are taking the appropriate measures in in relation to, to debris management. Mark, I agree with your points about the insurance industry. Obviously, that's that's the sort of foundational way to address some of the risk that's going on there. But to the point of what a government can do, our feeling is that governments need to create a, an environment of stability so that there is an environment that's attractive for investment. Because without that, then you won't be able to see the growth and all the commercial innovation that I think Nick and I, come, our companies kind of represent as part of this. So a stable investment climate derives from a, a sort of predictable regulatory environment, a predictable governance setting. And I think that's the biggest role for government here. Most of the innovation that's going to happen from here on out, out of in, in space is going to happen from the commercial sector. So empower it. I know there's massive enthusiasm for this in, in different governments within, within Europe today. And there's a, a big expansion of uh, entrepreneurial activities in the UK and in Toulouse and so on. So government, government support for stable investment uh, opportunities is probably the most important. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for such a fascinating conversation today. We normally like to end on a little bit of fun. So I'm going to ask you a couple of Mythbuster questions and just to see what, what your what your answers are for these. Number one, in the film Gravity, flecks of paint are seen to destroy satellites. Can this actually happen? Who'd like to take that one? I, I can have a go at that one. <laughs> yes, they can. It's the amount of energy that the small pieces of debris or flecks of paint even are have because they're traveling at you know eight times the speed of a bullet on the Earth's surface or thousands of miles per hour, tens of thousands even. Uh, so so they are traveling very fast and it's that energy. Uh, you know, I don't know if you remember the space shuttle, you know, had flecks of paint that hit the windscreen before. And so so they they depending on how they hit and, and uh, you know they, they can cause serious damage. Yeah, something the size of a two centimeter uh, object, uh, if it hits into a satellite, it's the same as a hand grenade being thrown. Wow. Yes, one of our four founders is uh, Ed Liu, who's been up to the um, ISS several times and and has uh, terrifying but very interesting stories uh, about uh, the exercises that they do to prepare for the potential of a a piece of very small debris hitting the hull. And uh, and there are uh, obviously a lot of examples of specks of paint hitting the solar panels and so on. So it's a real problem. Unlike gra- unlike the movie Gravity, you don't see them coming. And uh, well, I, gu- I guess when we get to a point where we'll be tracking all of the two centimeter pieces, that will take away some of the catastrophic risk, but it's going to be there. Thank you. Number two, lots of people think that when pieces of space junk land on Earth, they are radioactive. Is this true? So that's not true. So most of the debris that, that comes from space burns up in the atmosphere. But there are actually some larger pieces of debris that, uh, that do end up uh, on, on Earth. So according to NASA, 
uh, an average of, uh, of of one piece of debris falls back to earth each day and has done over the last 50 years. But despite this uh, regularity, there has been no evidence of significant property damage from this debris. Most of it ends up in the water, which covers most of our planet. Yes, and we like like to say that the the, the, the real risk of low Earth orbit is that the sky is not falling, that we uh, we need to deal with things that are, that are being persistent in low Earth orbit and not falling down. Thanks to everyone for joining me today. It's been a fascinating conversation. It's great to see companies working together to solve such pressing problems like space debris. Four, three, two, one. We are Seraphim.